You're listening to the Midtown Church Sermon Podcast. Midtown Church is a family loved and served by God, compelled to love and serve each other and Austin with God. Learn more at midtownaustin.org. Hey, good morning, Midtown friends. Good to see you guys this morning. Hope you enjoyed meeting someone new. Love that we have that little break time for us to get to know each other and meet somebody new. Um, If you are new here, I'll introduce myself. My name's Justin. I'm the associate pastor here. Would love to meet you if you're new as well, so come say hi afterward. Um, Before we jump into the uh, sermon today, I did want to make just a few quick little family announcements just to give you a little updates. Uh, First is to say thanks for those who did Dinner for Eight last night. We had a group that did Dinner for Eight last night, so thanks for our hosts. And then we've got another one tonight, another one Monday night. And so thanks in advance to to you guys who are hosting and participating uh, tonight and tomorrow night. Second thing is I really wanted to draw your attention again is uh, we're going to try to regularly have someone like Kristen did a great job this morning telling about her spiritually healthy habits. And we've got these guides in the back. If this is new to you and you weren't here when we kind of launched this, uh, we have this little guide here that gives you just 12 ideas of things that you can do to develop some spiritually healthy habits. And so this year we're encouraging all of us that are part of Midtown to to develop two. So pick two healthy habits. So it's not too late to jump on. As As well, if you're like me and you've started one and it hasn't gone so well, then it's also just an encouragement to say, hey, it's okay, start back over or pick a new one, all right? So I would encourage you to do that. Third thing uh, that I wanted to say was just give all you women in particular an invitation uh, to the Women's Weekend. You're going to hear a little bit more about it, but the Women's Weekend is really special. And if you are hesitating for any certain reason, I just encourage you to overcome those hesitations and commit. We've got about 15 more spots left. I think up front, we've actually failed to mention that we have a guest speaker. Her name's Kat Cannon. She's a former, she was a, a part of the church that Brenda and I were a part of about 20 years ago. And so I know her pretty well, and she's a phenomenal speaker. She's going to do a great job caring for you guys, and she's preparing messages on the topic of how to get rid of toxic thoughts. And so I think it's going to be really good, and it'll be fun to have an outside speaker and have that community together. So if you're among those who haven't signed up, I encourage you to do so. So we are going to continue now in our uh, study of, of the book of James. And today we're actually going to be moving into chapter two. If you weren't here for any of the other ones, I'd really encourage you to go to the website or go to Apple Podcasts and get the podcast to listen, because uh, it was just really good, practical teaching. That's what we love about James. It's super practical. And all through chapter one, it talked about how we handle trials and temptations, some really good stuff there. So I'd encourage you to catch up. And now we're actually going to shift into chapter two, and there's really kind of some key verses at the end of chapter one we'll look at first, because they kind of set the stage for all of chapter two. So that's kind of what we're going to do today. Uh, before we do that, I want to start by kind of telling you um, a really sad and an awful story. Um, <laughs> Encouraging, right? Just what you wanted to hear. <laughs> it is really uh, tragic, though, because stuff like I'm going to mention is happening more and more. Um, on, on April 27th of this year, an armed gunman uh, named John Ernest, he walked into a synagogue in Poway, uh, California, and on the last day of Pas- Passover, he walked in with an AR-15 rifle and started shooting people. One person died, and uh, the rabbi got shot too. Three other people were wounded. He kind of turned himself in without incense. He did his shots, and he went and actually called 911 on himself and got arrested. And then it was later discovered that he had written this really long manifesto that was just full of racism and hatred toward Jews and other races. And that's bad enough, but what made it worse was mixed in this manifesto was a lot of really sound, theologically true statements about his faith in Jesus. And so it caused like a huge conversation piece because you're saying, how is it possible that this guy that was raised in a Bible-believing church with a very godly family, his, his father was an elder at the church, four other Christian brothers and sisters that he has in his family, yet he has so much hatred that he could do something like this, yet still theologically say the right 
things in this manifesto. This naturally, it caused a lot of questions, right? And if you're thinking about it or hearing about it for the first time, it's probably causing some questions for you too. You think like, how can someone who claims to follow Jesus do something like this? What do you do with that? Like, what do you make of that? Does it make you mad? It makes you sad? It makes you ultimately say, how could someone who's really experienced the mercy and grace of God be filled with such hatred and not have mercy and God's love for other people? Well, that's the question that James is going to focus on today. And so that's just setting us up to say that's the thing that he's going to address. But before we do, let me pray. And before we do, we'll kind of look at those first two verses that really set the stage for chapter two. Let's pray. God, uh, we're grieved uh, when your great name is defamed like was with this man and like we see in many smaller ways uh, in our day and, and if we're honest, even in our own lives at times. So we pray that Jesus would not be defamed by any of us and we pray that the grace and mercy that we experience from you, even here this morning, would, would be on display to everyone around us, that we would grow in love and mercy toward others, especially to those that are marginalized in our society. Um, as we consider this tough topic today, I pray that you'd speak to each of us. Um, you be the one that, that convicts and encourages and touches each person individually here today. We invite you to do that. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. So we're going to begin by the last two verses in chapter 1 that, James, uh, that uh, J- Jake touched on last week, but you'll see here why these are so important leading into chapter 2. So chapter 1, it says, Those who consider themselves religious yet do not keep a tight rein on their tongues deceive themselves, and their religion is worthless. Religion that God our Father accepts as pure and faultless as this, to look after the orphans and widows in their distress and to keep oneself from being polluted by the world. So James is clearly saying here that there's two types of religion. He's using this word religion, but he's saying there's one that ends up being worthless, and it's the worthless one where you're not keeping a tight rein on your tongue, where you're filled with judgment or bigotry or hatred like we're going to see. Then there's another type of religion that's worth, worthwhile, and it's the one which leads us to care for the orphans and the widows and to keep ourselves from being polluted by the world. Jesus said it this way. Similarly, he said, for out of the overflow of the hearth, the mouth speaks. So what we say in judgment of others reveals the nature of our hearts. And we have mercy and love toward others. It reveals the nature of our hearts. Faith that God accepts is the kind that looks after orphans and widows. That's the type of religion that James is encouraging here. It's also proven that that when we keep our hearts from being polluted by the world, it's proven that we have genuine faith in Jesus when our lives are changing and we're not living like the world does. That's what true religion is like. And so this is kind of the transition statement, and now he's going to kind of put it to practice with one very specific thing that he's talking to the church about. And so what we're going to do in chapter 2 is we're going to look at that specific instance of how they practice this. Was it worthwhile religion, or was it worthless religion as they were living as he was writing this church? And we're going to ask three questions. If you're a note taker and want to get the three questions, real simply, it's what's the problem, why is it a problem, and then what does he say we're supposed to do with this problem, all right? So we're going to read the whole, uh, whole uh, chapter 2, uh, this whole section of Scripture, chapter 2, 1 through 13. My brothers and sisters, believers in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ must not show favoritism. Suppose a man comes into your meeting wearing gold ring and fine clothes, and a poor man in filthy old clothes also comes in. If you show special attention to the man wearing fine clothes and say, here's a good seat for you, or say to the poor man, you stand there or sit on the floor by my feet, have you not discriminated amongst yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? Listen, my dear brothers and sisters, has not God chosen those who are poor in the eyes of the world to be rich in faith and to inherit 
the kingdom he promised those who love him, but you have dishonored the poor. Is it not the rich who are exploiting you? Are they not the ones that are dragging you into court? Are they not the ones who are blaspheming the noble name of him to whom you belong? If you really keep the royal law found in scripture, love your neighbor as yourself, you're doing right. But if you show favoritism, you sin and are convicted by the law's lawbreakers. Whoever keeps the whole law and yet stumbles at just one point is guilty of breaking all of it. For he who said, you shall not commit adultery, also said, you shall not murder. And if you do not commit adultery, but you do commit murder, you have become a lawbreaker. Speak and act as those who are going to be judged by the law that gives freedom, because judgment without mercy will be shown to anyone who has not been merciful. Mercy triumphs over judgment. So we start here at the very start. What is the problem? It's pretty clear there, right? The problem was that they were showing favoritism toward the rich. Verses 1 through 3, my brothers and sisters, believers in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ must not show favoritism. And then he gives this example of there's the, the rich guy that comes in and they kind of pay attention to this person. They, they notice that he's probably wealthy by what he's wearing. And so they give him a favorite spot to sit. Whereas the poor guy and the, the filthy clothes comes in and they don't give him the honor that they gave the rich person. They tell him, you need to stand over there or sit over here. It might not be uh, too common for us in our day to look at it like that because we don't see seating as like a really uh, instrumental thing. So um, I know you guys are enjoying your very uncomfortable seats here at Midtown, so seat- seating is not a very big deal for us. <laughs> we get these little things, but back then it really was a big deal. You might remember that one time Jesus was actually uh, having dinner with some Pharisees, some of the religious leaders at their day, and he was noticing that they were trying to sit themselves in the places of most prominent. And so he goes on to tell them a parable and encourages them not to take the highest seat, but the true servant actually takes the lower seat. Or you might remember a case when uh, James and John, two of Jesus' followers, they sneak, sneak away with Jesus and they bring their mom with them and they, they ask like, hey, can we sit at your right and your left hand when you establish the kingdom? So like seating was a big deal for them. So this is a really practical example of what was taking place in their church and the way that they were showing favoritism totally toward the rich. I started thinking uh, today about some of the ways that we would do this, and favoritism, I think, would be primarily shown in how we treat other people who are different from us, how we treat people, who are the people that we're willing to associate with, to talk with, to invite into our homes, to spend time with, to care for. I thought of several different categories. You could probably name some yourself. In fact, I'm praying that somewhere along in this sermon, God's spirit would just speak to you, and you might see some place of favoritism in your own heart. But to give us some thought about maybe how we do it in our day, First, we'll say, yes, with James, we can do this with money, right? This can be a a money thing for us, too. We uh, do this with money just as they did in their day. We're prone to favor people based on what we think that they can give us, based on the money that they have. And we can look down upon those who are poor, maybe think they've made bad decisions or that we're better than them somehow. We can do it the other way as well. We can actually be the type of people who show favoritism toward the poor and discriminate against the rich because we place judgment upon them for their situations. We do this sometimes with age, I think, in our culture. We can discriminate against older people, not valuing their wisdom and their experience, look instead to younger people or think that they're past their prime. We can do it the other way, too, where we can look down at young, young people and see them as ignorant or their opinions not as valuable or they're too caught up in the world. Money, age, we do this definitely with attractiveness. We discriminate on people based on their attractiveness. And what the world at least deems as being attractive, that we're able to give certainly more attention to someone who we find attractive. We can do this with personalities, I think. We can discriminate against people based on their personalities, whether they're introvert or extrovert or a quiet person or a loud person, or even their social ability. We can do this with social ability. We're more eager to spend time with people who are more socially aware, and we try to avoid people that seem to be harder to talk to or to be around. 
We can certainly do this in our culture. We know we do this with ethnicity as well, that we live in a country that's very divided and broken because of the racial discrimination of our history that still takes place today. We're not prone to listen to people and their experiences when they have different skin color than us because we're just really only really wanting to see things through the lens of our own culture. We do this too politically, right? This is a very, very divided time politically, and we're the type of people who will show favoritism to the ones that actually believe like we do. In fact, those that don't believe like we do on any political thing, we're, we're actually prone to look at them in judgment and actually assign evil to them. I thought it was pretty funny this week that uh, the Ellen DeGeneres thing, did y'all see that thing? That she was spotted last Sunday uh, sitting next to George W. Bush at a Dallas Cowboys game, and she got like a ton of flack from, from the left, uh, just saying like, how could you possibly be sitting by George W. Bush? And it was so funny that then she came out in her monologue and just said, because I can have, I can have friendships with people that have different beliefs than me. <laughs> you know, it's like, I don't show favoritism. And if they could be united basically because of the Dallas Cowboys and an experience that they could have together, how much more should we, who are in Christ, not show favoritism, but instead be able to have Christ be the thing that unites us and never show favoritism as James commands them here. So that's the problem they were facing, and you can think through, hopefully those, those just gave you a few ideas of maybe how we do it. May God's Spirit speak to us even today and, and show us other ways, maybe beyond what I mentioned, that we show favoritism, that we show judgment toward people that are different from us. Now, why is it a problem? There's really multiple reasons. I'm going to give five that I think you can see pretty clearly from this passage. The first reason why is because it's incongruent with our faith. That's why he starts it off with this command, but he, look at the first part of the command. My brothers and sisters, as believers in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ, must not show favoritism. So he's saying this should especially not be true among Christians. Like we who believe that there's a God who created every person individually, that he knows them, he knit them together in their mother's womb, that he loves them enough that he would die for them. Why, of all people, should we have favoritism? Because we know that God doesn't have favoritism. He's saying it's incongruent. Like, you guys are believers in the Lord Jesus Christ. How can you show favoritism? favoritism. It's incongruent with our faith because Christ is really what unites us. That's why I love that we can be in a room like this today, and there are people that are very different from one another, hold different views than one another, different personalities from one another, but we're here gathered because we worship the same God and we follow Jesus. I love that throughout the week we have our midtown communities and we're gathering in each other's homes with people that are often very different from us because we believe that Christ is what unites us. We're not going to let any of those differences or show favoritism to one group or the other group. We're going to be willing and eager to be around all types of people because that's how God has loved us. It's incongruent with our faith not to be. Second reason that he says, he says it reveals evil and judgmental heart. In verse 4, have you not discriminated among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? Really, when it comes down to it, when you're showing favoritism towards someone, what you're doing is you're making yourself out to be God. You're standing in judgment of them, and that's what James clearly sees right here. He says, have you not discriminated amongst yourselves? You become judges with evil thoughts. So how did John Ernest get to the place where, where he could have these Christian beliefs yet still harbor so much hatred in his heart? It was because he became like a god to those people. He started judging them, and his heart was filled with evil thoughts. That's what happens. It doesn't fit in the Christian life because we're not to be made other people's judges. Third thing, third reason that James gives as to why this is a problem is because it actually contradicts God's heart for the poor. Listen, my dear brothers and sisters, has not God chosen those who poor or are poor in the eyes of the world to be rich in faith and inherit the kingdom? He promised those who love him. 
but you have dishonored the poor. What he's saying here is this contradicts God's heart for the poor. Like you, if you're standing in favoritism of someone, you are actually going against the very people that God loves. Now, God loves all people, but we see throughout Scripture, God calls us to give special attention to those that are marginalized. That's why he mentions the orphans and the widows. In our day, it might be orphans and widows and immigrants or poor. The people that are marginalized, God has a special heart for. And really, what you'll see often in Scripture, and you see it here in James, is that often it's actually the poorer people that recognize their need for Jesus before rich people. Not in every case, but in many cases, you'll see throughout Scripture that it's the poor people who are first to follow Jesus. There are certainly some rich, and you see examples of the rich people who follow Jesus as well. But overall, wealth can be an actual hindrance to seeing your need for God. And so he's saying, have you not discriminated among yourselves? Like, like, don't you see that God loves the poor and you're among the poor that he called? Like, how did you get backwards on this? I love the way that Paul wrote when he was writing the Corinthian church. He was reminding them of what they were like when they first put their faith in him. In 1 Corinthians 1, he, he says it this way. Brothers and sisters, think of what you were when you were called. Not many of you are wise by human standards. Not many of you influential. Not many of you were of noble birth. But God chose the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. He chose the weak things to shame the strong. He chose the lowly things of this world, the despised things, the things that are not, to nullify the things that are, so that no one may boast before him. But God favors the poor, and so why would we be showing favoritism toward the rich? Then we're, we're contradicting God's heart. It should be noted that there's actually one really wealthy follower of Jesus that wrote about this passage one time. And he said, I sure am glad that the M is in that sentence. <laughs> it says, not many of you, <laughs> not any of you, right? He said, no, I'm glad that there's the M because, yes, there's rich people that come to faith as well. And there's, like I said earlier, there's also ways that we show favoritism toward the poor and neglect the rich or judge them. So both, it goes both ways. God loves the poor. Fourth reason that he gives that as to why this is, is, is uh, against God is real simply that it violates the great commandment. It violates the great commandment. In verse 8, if you really keep the royal law found in Scripture, love your neighbor as yourself, you're doing right. But if you show favoritism, you sin and are convicted by the law as lawbreakers. Favoritism simply breaks the golden rule. That's the, pretty much the number one thing that Jesus said that this is the, they asked him, you know, what is it that sum up all the laws in one commandment? He says, love God with all your heart and mind and your strength. And the second one's like it, love your neighbor as yourself. And so he's just drawing back to this and saying, look, you can't show favoritism because then you're actually breaking the great commandment. It doesn't work. You're not supposed to break the great commandment. In fact, he actually then says, compares it to adultery and murder, right? James gets a little, little drastic with his people. And he says, if you, if, you don't, if you show favoritism, you're breaking the royal law, you might as well have committed murder. You might as well have committed adultery. Jesus said something very similar in his, in his Sermon on the Mount, his famous sermon. He said, if you just get angry at someone, that's equivalent to murdering them. If you've lusted after someone, that's, a commit, that's equivalent to adultery. What James and Jesus were trying to do there is not say that there's not deeper consequences to either of those sins. But what he's trying to say is that if you just break one part of the law, you've broken all of it. Because both Jesus and then James here is trying to get the people to recognize that they need God's mercy. Which leads us really to the fifth point and most powerful and important one. Reason why we shouldn't show favoritism is because it reveals that you do not see your need for God's mercy. Verse 12, speak and act as those who are going to be judged by the law that gives freedom because judgment without mercy will be shown to anyone who has not been merciful. Mercy triumphs over judgment. 
So when we show favoritism toward others, it shows that we misunderstand the gospel of grace because we've not recognized how much mercy God has had on us. The way that we should live in the world and respond to other people is just constantly in recognition of how much mercy God has given us that then frees us then to give that mercy back to others. He's commanding them here to speak and to act as those who've been showed mercy and spared God's judgment. He's actually telling them that, that God is your judge. Don't, don't forget this. You're not the judge of other people. God is your judge. And you should be humbled by that. But you should also be drawn to ask for God's mercy and remember that you've received it. That Jesus paid the penalty for your sin and all of the sin and judgment and favoritism that we have in our hearts was all poured upon him on the cross where God found a way to be both just and to give us mercy. Paul would describe it this way in Romans, the way that God did this. God presented Christ as a sacrifice of atonement through the shedding of his blood to be received by faith. He did this to demonstrate his righteousness because in his forbearance, which means his mercy, he left the sins committed beforehand go unpunished. He did this to, dem to demonstrate his righteousness at the present time so as to be just and the one who justifies those who have faith in Jesus. God presented Jesus as a sacrifice, enabling him to be just and mercy. And at that cross, when all of that was poured on him, that is where mercy triumphed over judgment. And so he's saying, like, guys, you can't show favoritism because you're the one that's in need of God's mercy. God is your judge. You're the one in need of mercy. So should we be merciful to others. Now let's take it back to the transition verses Pure and unadulterated religion is this, to look after the orphans and widows in their distress and to keep oneself from being polluted by the world. Pure, unadulterated religion means not showing favoritism. You don't, if you don't love the orphans and the widow or the poor or the marginalized, the, the weird people, the difficult people, the unattractive people, the people who can't do anything for you, then have you really experienced the mercy of God? That's what James is saying because that's what you were in God's eyes before he died for you. That's the mercy that he experienced toward you. It's the kind of mercy that we as a body of Christ should show toward every person without showing favoritism. The church that Brenda and I were at before we helped uh, plant uh, Midtown, they had these missionaries in India. And I really loved what they did because in certain parts of India, they have uh, like a caste system. Y'all aware of that? So like you're born into a certain status of society and you cannot get out of it. Like there's no upward or downward mobility. Like you're born, you're stuck in that caste system. And of course, that just goes totally contrary to the gospel. It's a James 2 type of issue, right? And, and the, the people that are higher up in the caste really despise and look down upon the lower castes. But what my friends would do is they would see people come to faith in Christ and they begin to understand God's mercy on them. One of the most powerful things that they would do is they would get someone from one caste to go down to the, the lower caste and they would wash their feet they go into these villages and say, hey, we want to wash your feet. And it just blows away the caste system. Like the, the lower caste were like, what are you doing? Why are you doing this? Which gave them the opportunity to say, because this is what Jesus has done for me. In a powerful way. That's true and worthwhile religion by my book, uh, James' book. Final question that we'll ask here is why should we, uh, how should we respond to the problem? Hinted at it already, but it's just right there in that last verse. We're supposed to, he says, speak and act as those who are going to be judged by the law that gives freedom. Because judgment without mercy will be shown to anyone who's not been merciful. Mercy triumphs over judgment. So we started the passage with a negative command, don't show favoritism. Now we're ending with a positive command. What are we supposed to do instead? We're supposed to speak and act as those who've been given mercy. 
What he's telling them to do is to recognize that God is their judge, like you're going to be judged. Speak and act like God's going to judge you. You know what that does? You start to recognize and remember that God is your judge and you're going to be accountable for how you have cared for and loved others. First thing it means is it'll do is you'll stop judging others because you're focused on yourself. But more powerfully, what second thing it will do, it'll remind you of how often you fall short. When you recognize God as your judge and you recognize how often you fall short, you'll call out to God for his mercy, you'll thank him for his sacrifice of Jesus, and when you do, your heart begins to experience God's mercy in a way that then you can live it out before others. There's really kind of two paths we can take if you look at this, right? Your heart is probably either always tending toward judgment or tending toward mercy. I know it would be a really sad story if we were to ask for a raise of hands, but I bet that there's many of you here who could experience, who've experienced a group of people, often it's religious people, who get self-righteous, who get hatred toward other groups, who begin to look down and judge other people. And we've seen that. And he's saying that's a heart that's moving toward judgment. What James is calling us to do, what he's calling them to do, was to be a heart that actually goes toward mercy. The more that we experience God's mercy, the more then we can then give it to others. So, religion that our Father accepts is this, to look after the orphans and widows and to keep oneself from being polluted by the world. The first part of that, look after the orphans and widows. That means as believers and followers of Jesus, we should not show favoritism. Instead, we should love everyone, especially the marginalized and, under, or, and overlooked people in our society because we believe that they're created in God's image and he too, they too are ones that Jesus died for. And as for being polluted by the world, what he's saying is all these worldly standards that give us these judgments in our hearts, he's saying you can't be polluted by that. We've got to find a way as believers not to fall prey to the judgments that the world would put upon us and then we sometimes then will put upon others. Our world shows favoritism in lots of ways toward the rich, toward the young, toward the attractive, to the smart, the social. The world discriminates based on others, based on their race or their politics, their careers, their emotional intelligence. We cannot be polluted by the world. That's the worthless religion, but we want the worthwhile religion. So let me just ask, like, where are you prone to favoritism in your own life? Are you prone to judge? Was there anyone, anyone or any group of people that came to mind? Well, God would invite you then to just call out for his mercy and ask him for his mercy again. Where we show favoritism, we're prone to judge, and what we need to do is step back and say, God, you're my judge, and I need your mercy and forgiveness here, which is what we get to do here at the end of worship, which I love so much that we do every week because Jesus instituted communion as a way to remind ourselves again and again that we need God's mercy, and as we reflect on what he has done for us, our hearts begin to change, and we become the type of people that show mercy and don't judge others, don't show favoritism. And so as we take communion, as we worship here this morning, I'd really urge you to remember how mercy triumphed over judgment at the cross. And if there was something or someone that came to mind, a, a group of people or a person that you found that there's some sort of favoritism or judgment in your heart, just receive God's mercy again and ask him to change your heart and make you more merciful as he is merciful toward you. Let's close in prayer and encourage you to come to the front or the back for communion. Uh, Cameron and Kristen Gaddy are our prayer people for today, so if there's anything that you want prayer for related to something that God spoke today or anything going on in your life, you can go back to the back and receive prayer from them. As you take communion uh, here, you can come to the front or back, think about God's mercy, and then let's sing about it so that we can help each other believe his mercy on us. Let's pray.
God, we thank you for, for James and just a simple, simple wisdom that he just addresses an issue so uh, simply with his people. We know it looks different in our day, and so we just ask for, for all the bits of favoritism that we might show that you would just weed that out of our hearts. Pray particularly even for us just as a church that we would be known as a type of people who show mercy and no favoritism because we really experienced your mercy and don't just believe it like on a paper that we would write, but we show it with other people. I ask for you to meet us as we worship. Let us remember what you've done for us and let us sing of what you've done for us. And as we do, make us more merciful. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening to the Midtown Church Sermon Podcast. We hope this ministry has blessed you. If you would like to support this ministry, you can donate at midtownaustin.org.